guys. Thanks for listening to Library Overload. This is Susie. And this is Tavia. Don't forget, you can check out our blog. We'll list all of the books we talk about in every episode there. It's libraryoverload.home.blog. And then you can also follow us on Instagram. We're Library Overload there. And we love to interact with you. So come check us out. So, welcome, welcome. Hope you guys have been doing well. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. What is that from? Welcome back, Cotter. The TV show from like the 70s. Oh, I was like, that sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know what it is. It was good stuff. John Travolta (laughs) was in it. (laughs) I think it was pre-Grease for him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I used to watch it on Naked Night reruns. Well, right, like, that's why it seemed familiar, but I was like, I couldn't name the show, but I knew that it was something. (laughs) Anyways, guys, (laughs) so in honor of Father's Day, we are reading, in my words from earlier this week, some man books. Some man books. (laughs) I just wrote dudes on my episode list. Yeah, I like it. But no, we're just, we're going to be reading books written by men, about men. Good men. I've got, of course, I've got a weird one, so I've got some bad men. But just for Father's Day, you know, I I can I can not say no to a serial killer book. So sorry. But it's got good guys in it too. Okay. So it's okay. But yeah, I read, just, I read some pretty heavy stuff this week. I did too. <sighs> some heart wrenching stuffs. But in in celebration of equality, we wanted to read We've read lots of books about women. We've talked all about how we love the ladies. Yes. We wanted Daniel to... tells me a lot that we t- we've we talked about women too much and we need to even the playing field a little. Talk about some guys. Well, men have plenty of platforms. Yes, this is true. But I will say, actually, so I always, whenever I'm looking for a book to read for an episode, I, you know, I shop my own shelves, first of all, and I really don't own many books written by men which is kind of awesome because I know that the the imbalance is kind of crazy Mm -hmm. there are way more male authors than female but in my house it's like 90 95 maybe percent women authors and I'm not mad about it yeah I'm not mad about it either but we're here to celebrate some good guys yes the good guys they don't finish last <laughs> i don't know sometimes they still do because that's life mm. it's that's just okay. life that's okay well i'm gonna get started with one that was very heavy okay <laughs> uh this was called this one's called another man's war the true story of one man's battle to save children in the sudan and that is by sam childers How did this get on your radar? There is a movie called Machine Gun Preacher. Okay. It's got Gerard Butler in it. Yes, he's young. Yes, and it's one of Daniel's favorite movies. And so when I was talking about wanting to read books about dudes that are doing good things and things like that, he's like, oh my gosh, check this book out. So 
that's what led me here. And it's only 254 pages. Or, I'm sorry, 240 pages. So it's it's really not that big at all. Um, nice. So it was easy to get through. But it was... It's, it's all true. I mean, it says it in the title, true story. But it's... <sighs> I cried a lot. I cried a mm-hmm. whole, whole, whole lot. And I had lots of questions. And it has prompted lots of discussions and a lot of internal struggles for myself mm-hmm. that that I, I still don't think that I'm sorted through. Mm-hmm. And I finished this book, I think, on Tuesday. Um, so I, I just, I don't think I'll ever stop thinking about Good. lessons that are in this book for me. But it's about Sam Childers. And he is, he used to be a biker with the outlaws. He was a drug dealer, like a drug user, kind of violent guy. And then he, he found religion. He found God. And he kind of transformed his life, changed his life around. And the opportunity to go to Africa on mission work came up and he took it and he went. And while he was over there, he was in the Sudan he realized what was happening over there and he felt God's calling to build an orphanage. So he builds this orphanage and he, he goes about trying to save as many kids as he can. But I don't know if any of our readers are familiar because I wasn't really when I started, but in the Sudan, there is basically violence of a war happening for, I mean, as long as people can remember. And the, Government has a group, and then the opposing group is called, ironically, the Lord's Resistance Army. <laughs> and it, at one point, I think it started as a religious war between Muslims and Christians. It has devolved at this point to the Lord's Resistance Army being almost like a, an army of this one man who's like a cult leader type figure. And... If you look into his life or his beliefs, they're incoherent. Like, his dogmas don't make sense. So, basically what he they do is they go into villages in Africa and they kill all of the adults. And they break the children by having the children kill their own parents or killing the parents in front of the children. Then they Jesus. kidnap the children and raise them as child soldiers. Hmm. So basically all of the adult soldiers now have been in this so long. They're brainwashed into it. They've hmm. been broken by these people. And now they go out and capture new children and recruit them for the army. And they make them do these terrible things, carrying these guns that are bigger than they are at times. And it's terrifying and there's nowhere that's safe. And the government doesn't have enough power to fight them. And some of these villages are very remote. Um, sometimes the, the kids at night will walk from their village to the closest city in the in mass just to be safe and sleep mm-hmm. at night in this village, yeah, or in the city. So he goes there and he basically takes head on the LRA. And he starts by going in after raids and collecting children that they missed. And then, you know, he kind of tackles them head on in some places and he says they're not used to people fighting back so when people fight back they just turn around and run usually Hmm. so he's he's saved uh, over a thousand children at this point and he has this full system where he 
educates them and, you know, helps them survive. And now they've started like a farm. So they're giving back to the community and things like that because it's just, it's a very, very poor place. You know, Mm. there's, there's not a lot going on, but he has been so successful and so helpful that the actual government of the South Sudan has given him command of his own soldiers there. So he's actually and now a state sponsored, you know, military leader. Hmm. It's very it's very inspiring, it's very poignant, it's very sad. Very, very sad because he does describe in detail what happens. He describes what prompted him to first do this. Mm-hmm. But he does talk a lot about his ta- his religion and God speaking to him. So it's very it's a very religious book. I didn't realize a lot of this stuff that was going on. I think at one point I texted you and I said, this is something I'll never be able to unknow. And like the, the knowledge of it is really heavy. It's been really heavy on my heart all week. Mm. Um, knowing that this has been happening for so long and that these children have gone through so much and mm-hmm. nobody's there to help them. Like, you know, they've been struggling with this for decades and no other entities go in to help them at all. Like, they try to get, you know, the um, Red Cross and stuff like that in there to help, but it's so dangerous, those people Mm -hmm. won't go in anymore. So, sometimes they hire him to travel and and transport goods and stuff, but it's just, it's very scary. It's very sad. so this man, is he still there or is yeah. this? Okay. Yeah. He, I mean, he travels back and forth between you, there and here. Do you remember his name? Sam Childers. Okay. And you can donate, you can find all kinds of things about him online. Um, yeah, we'll post, I'll find uh, his, uh, his website or whatever it, his foundation and I'll, I'll post it on the, on the blog. And, I mean, he's he does fantastic, fantastic work. And he, at the time that he did this, um, he had a full-on construction business, and he sold it, and sold mm-hmm. every bit of it to go over and build this church, or to build this orphanage. I mean, and so he's he's really, really helped and saved a ton of children, and he does really good, amazing things. Mm-hmm. I just hate that he. That there's a world out there that he has to, I guess. Right. You know. Yeah, I just found his Instagram page. He looks nothing like what I pictured him. No, he absolutely looks like a biker still. He does. He's even got the huge handlebar, like the mustache. That's funny. Yeah. But he's, I don't know, he's really, he's, he's never shied away from helping people who can't help themselves. And that's kind of one, you know, the theme of that, the story a little bit. And just, I I don't know. I think it's a book that you have to read yourself to understand completely. But it was just, he's a really cool dude. He's doing amazing, amazing things for the kids over there. Sounds like it. Yeah. Oh, there was a reality series apparently back in 2017. Oh, I didn't know that. The book was published in 2009. Uh, he first went to Africa in 1996, I believe. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check him out. His his mission, his work sounds incredibly heavy, but yes. incredible. Yes. 
Okay. Well, I've got uh, another, I've got a book that's not quite as heavy. Um, this is called The Other Wes Moore, One Name, Two Fates by Wes Moore. And this follows two kids named Wes Moore that were born just a few blocks apart from each other, about a year uh, in between. They grew up fatherless in uh, Baltimore. They had difficult childhoods. They both kind of uh, ran into trouble with the police. Um, but one ended up a Rhodes Scholar, a veteran, um, and the other ended up a convicted felon. Uh, serving a life sentence and so it follows these two black men as they are looking back on their life and kind of how they got where they are what choices made one go so terribly wrong and one go so incredibly right and it just kind of it's it's really poignantly written so it's written by Wes Moore the Rhodes Scholar and he he has gone to study abroad for a semester in South Africa. And his mother one day on their weekly talks is like, hey, did you know that they're looking for a man with your name as well that robbed a, a jewelry store? And he was like, oh, that's weird. And didn't really think anything of it until he got back. And he he looked the guy up. And they were so similar in age, so similar in background, but one happened to get out at the right time, Mm -hmm. get out of the neighborhood, get out of the situation. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, does your upbringing, does your environment crucially impact how you live the rest of your life, the decisions that you make, all of that? And it was it was very interesting. So Wes, the one that is in prison now, um, he ended up fathering four children by the time he was, you know, early 20s. Um, but he had finally gotten his life together and he had finally gotten out of the drug scene. He was selling, making a ton of mon- money doing it. But, you know, that's not a good life to lead. And so he had finally gotten out. He had gone to this place that taught you a trade and he had decided that he wanted to work with his hands. So he was building things and he was really enjoying it, but it just wasn't paying the bills. And so he got, he went right back into the drug, mm-hmm. drug trade. And it's just like, God, you were, you were right there, man. Like, and it was so frustrating just to read it, knowing that, like, if you had just taken a right instead of a left, mm-hmm. like, you wouldn't be in jail for the rest of your life. And it was just, it was, it was very, very interesting. And the Wes um, that is not in prison ultimately does send Wes in prison a letter saying, hey, this may be really strange, but my name is Westmore too. And I would love to just speak with you. And Wes in prison responds. And, he's, and he responds very poignantly. And he's like, that would be a very interesting discussion to kind of see how we both went different ways. Um, but the thing that I, the thing that I hated the most was that the Wes in prison has the entire time said that he wasn't involved in the robbery. And it's just like, 
and it's never even kind of discussed whether like and you don't even hear his side of things like if you weren't there like is is there nothing they can do to prove that you weren't there or is there nothing that can are there any appeals that can be done like nothing and it just and and so it's just like I would have loved to have read more about that because mass incarceration is a horrible thing especially with black men mm-hmm. and then on top of the fact that I just read Just Mercy a couple of months ago mm-hmm. and just being immersed in that world of men jailed for things that they never did that mm-hmm. they would have not done right. and it's just like but but are you not guilt? Like, is no, is no one that helping you? The point of the narrative it, they wanted it to wasn't. Or... It wasn't, but that really bothered me. But was, but what was also heartbreaking was at the end of the book, he kind of goes through the list of characters, and it's like Wes, the scholar, his family, what they've been doing, what they've been up to. A couple have died since the book was published, and I've, I'm reading the paperback, so it had some updates, and then it had Wes in jail his list of characters and it was like this one has died from gun violence this one has died from drugs um his mother is now raising his four children and her other son's kids and it's just like it's such an awful awful cycle but and so it just makes you think that sometimes people make bad decisions because they're bad people but sometimes people make bad decisions because of the environment that they're in and it's yeah. just, it's tough and it's heavy. And I'm just like, I, I want to do something, but what can I do? And it's just, yeah. ugh. But it was really, it was really interesting. It was a very, like, if you look at it from a, a study guide, it's a really interesting thing to see how two young men from the same neighborhood, mm-hmm. same age, kind of how they veer off in such opposite directions. Um, Does it talk? But- about their parents or anything like what the parents it did differently does it does and the west the scholar his mother bent over backwards to make sure that he went in the right direction in quotation marks um and then west in prison i don't know how else to differentiate them i'm yeah. sorry but the west that is in prison his mother was one that had a child as a teenager kept having children and ended up being a grandmother of two babies and her having a baby at the same time. So it's just, it was rough. She was never into drugs. And so she tried her best to keep her kids away from it as much as they could. But when you're a single mom, you're having to work two and three jobs. You can't be there all the time. So it was just, it was just shitty. You know, it was just, like there there's constantly barriers and things stopping this poor kid from just getting out and it was just it just sucked um but and then on the other hand you have someone who just happened to make the right decisions the right changes at the right time and got out when they did mm-hmm. and it just happens to work out well for him when it could have not yeah like you said, you could have taken a left instead of a right, and your whole life is different. Yeah. It's very poignant. Like, 
You know, yeah, that's, it that's was really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. We live with that every single day, but it's only yeah. hindsight that allows us that clarity yeah. of that decision, you know. How do yeah. we know we're making the wrong decision at the time? Yeah, but it was it was really it was really good. It was interesting. It was frustrating. I know you had mentioned Just, it before, wanting to read yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I had happened to get it for free. I don't even know where, um, but I had heard of it, and it's you know it's a fascinating um, subject. And so yeah, I'm glad I finally had the chance to read it. Good. I am glad. I am glad that you enjoyed it. Thank you. You're welcome. I shall move on to the next one that I really didn't know I wanted to read, but I'm so glad I did. And I didn't know very much about the surroundings of the book or the, you know, the story of the book until I did read it. And that was uh, Dreams from My Father, A Story of Race and Inheritance by Barack Obama. Oh, I'm so mad you got to it first. Yeah. It's real, real good, guys. It's, uh, I just, Barack Obama took me to church <laughs> on several occasions. How old was he when he published this? Do you know? So, like, do you uh, know I don't him? know his age, but the book was published in 95. Okay. Um, so maybe around 30. I think he was, yeah. born, I think he's around the same age as my mom. Yeah, because he wasn't very old at all when he was um... right this was before he became senator this was before obviously he ran for president this was he he was prompted to write this book because he had been elected the first african-american president of the harvard law review okay and that's kind of the catalyst for where he starts this book okay and you know i don't know a lot about Barack Obama. I didn't before I read this. I actually had no idea about his parentage or, you know, I knew that there was some questions about it, but I wasn't really, as they say, woke <laughs> at the time. So, <laughs> so I didn't I, research it or whatever. Um, I only knew um, what Michelle covered in her book. So she did speak a little bit about him, but I don't know a lot yeah. and that's what i haven't finished is is her book so um, good yeah so but the the process of this book is that he's in new york in the 80s and he gets a phone call that his dad has passed away that he was in a car accident and so he kind of starts from there and goes on a backtrack of how his family became and how he came to be and then how he was raised but his mother is white mm-hmm. and his father is black and he is from Kenya and they met in the 60s in Hawaii and now the 60s in Hawaii was a little insular bubble of you know it wasn't as terrible race wise as it was like say in the south Shocking no one. Right, but he is still a mixed-race child growing up in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And his dad leaves, and his parents get divorced when he's fairly young. Um, his mom remarries. And Doesn't she kind of flit away? Well, like... he, she marries the guy that's um, Indonesian. And so the whole family okay. moves to Indonesia. And he says that living in Indonesia had a profound effect on him. I'm sure. Uh, because just seeing the poverty and the powerlessness of the people and stuff like that. But his mom kind of tirelessly pursues his education. 
So when they're in Indonesia, he, she signs him up for like correspondence courses and stuff because the school systems there are not going to work for him. Um, they're just not that good. And eventually she's like, yeah, this isn't, you, you have to go back to America to go to school because this isn't working. So he goes back and he lives with his white grandparents, grandparents mm-hmm. in Hawaii and goes to a private school in Hawaii. And the whole time he's like kind of interacting with his sister. That's his half sister from his dad. And he has several siblings actually in Africa because his dad was Muslim. And so the concept of wives is different. So his dad actually had like three or four wives. Wow. Um, So that's where all the, the bullshit about him not being American and being Muslim and all that came from. Yes. I literally thought people were making that up because he was black. <laughs> no, no. His dad is from Kenya and he, he's not like religious or he wasn't like religiously Muslim, but mm-hmm. he was a Muslim person. Like he had to yeah. be Muslim. And his grandfather before him did, and he had several wives as well. And so his, that's what Barack Obama is a, is a Muslim name. Um, into the canoe, that's where that whole thing came from. But his, the, the main narrative of the story is his identity with his race. Mm-hmm. Growing up with a white mother and then being predominantly raised by his white parent, grandparents as a black man. Mm-hmm. And his identity with that coming Mm -hmm. to terms with who he is as a person struggling with how his narrative of race fits in with other people's experiences or you know things like that and how like that you know his grandparents can still love him and he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that they love him but they can still be racist towards other people Mm -hmm. and he basically goes through his whole you know life until he gets to Chicago and he starts doing projects and stuff there and he's like you know the the experiences of the people in Chicago and the the rough areas is not the same that I had and so you know how do I identify mm-hmm. a black man and then he actually the end of the book he travels to Kenya and he meets his his African family he gets cool. to meet his um brothers and sisters he gets to meet his grandmother and he gets to travel to the ancestral place where his grandmother still lives and that's like a big thing with africa and african religion like you have where you were born and your homeland and then where you travel and live to so your homeland is a very big concept there okay and i may be not explaining it fully because like i mean obviously i'm not african so it doesn't i don't have the same right point of view to be able to understand but essentially that's it so he goes there to this house that's been there you know like forever that his grandparents lived in and and all of that and he comes to terms with his blackness and he comes Mm -hmm. to terms with his african family and understanding Mm -hmm. you know why people leave africa or why people stay and it was just it was really powerful because you can see he's younger and he's still becoming who he is Hmm. You can kind of see that, and it's really cool. And it's that a is cool. Side of him that y- you know you don't see before. Like when he's running for senator and president and all that, he's very calculated. 
Mm-hmm. And this, it's not as much about that. It's about who he he's really becoming. Yeah. He's presenting to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was really, it was awesome. It was really, really good. That's and awesome. I, I have no, you know, point of view, no point of reference, but I can imagine coming to terms with being a black man raised by white people, you know, and then immersing yourself in the black culture. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, I, I can imagine that would be very, very difficult, especially the 60s and yeah. 70s when, you know, he's doing all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I've seen several things. I've got a few friends um, that are mixed race and I've just seen so many things, especially recently them talking about how you're not black enough, but you're also not white enough. And so having to kind of figure yourself out when you're, when you're not fully anything is, Mm -hmm. is so difficult. And then just put that on top of when you're, when you're born in the sixties is, is and then like trying to, you know, he said he would try to defend, you know, like people say, oh, all white folks are like this. And he was like, well, you know, no, not really. Like, but then that made him feel like a traitor to the black people. And so that was just kind of very interesting to see him hmm. work that out. It was basically like he was working out his identity through the book, like through the process of writing it. That's it cool. Really beautiful. That's really neat. I'm very glad that you read it. And so now I'm going to have to purchase it and Michelle's book so I can set them up next to each other. Yes. And he <laughs> actually has other books, but this was the first one that he did. Mm-hmm. And then he, um, I didn't realize this, but his mother died in 95 and his father died in the 80s. So neither one of them saw him mm. become the president. And his grandmother that raised him died two weeks before he was sworn in. She knew, but mm-hmm. she didn't make it that far. But yeah, kind of- I remember. I remember in Michelle's book, her speaking on his grandmother dying and them having to decide, like, should we go because it was so close and all of that. So I do remember that in her book. But yeah, I'm glad you liked it. His journey to Africa and learning all about his African heritage was really cool. And there's, there is one thing where his grandmother, she only speaks the language of the people there, the Lou. And so his sister translates for him. And she's like, you should really, it's sad that you can't speak the language of your people or something. And he struggled with that too, you know, but I was just kind of cool. But she sits him down and tells him like the whole history. And he talks about it there and, and how his grandfather came to be where he was and how, they came to be, you know, and then what process, you know, made his dad want to go to America, to Hawaii, hmm. to become educated. His actually, his dad went to Harvard as well. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very, very interesting. That's awesome. Cannot wait to read that. Okay. My next one is my true crime one. This is Bringing Adam Home, The Abduction That Changed America by Les Staniford and Joe Matthews. And this follows the kidnapping and murder of Adam Walsh, who is John Walsh's son. So if you, um, so this was in 1981. This is well into the times that 
parents didn't need to keep their kids close and there was no fear of any like anything happening to them because your you, kids play outside. Yeah, like it was just kids run and play until the street lights come on. And then, you know, that's you just expect them home and they'll be home and nothing bad happens. So Adam Walsh went with his mother to a Sears store. He wanted to look at the video game section. So she was like, okay, I'll be right over here looking at lamps. I'll be right back. And she didn't see him for about 15 minutes. And that's all it took. So um, this follows the, the kidnapping and kind of how, his, um, how Mrs. Walsh dealt with that. And then it follows the police... Uh, precincts in Hollywood, Florida that had where Daniel's dad was born. Oh, that's weird. Uh, So it follows the police department and the detectives that originally had the case and how they sucked so bad at their jobs. Mm. So there are two bad guys and two good guys. Bad guy is obviously the kidnapper and murderer, Otis Toole. And another bad guy is Detective Hoffman, I believe is his name. I believe it's Hoffman. He was the lead detective on this case, and he sucked. He got an idea of who he thought the murderer was. And even when the murderer confessed approximately 20 times to murdering Adam Walsh, he was like, he's lying. There's not enough. And kept trying to prove that tool didn't do it instead of doing his job like it was it's it's astounding the walsh's didn't get tool convicted of this murder until what would have been adam's i believe his 27th birthday oh my gracious and adam was kidnapped when he was six years old wow Two decades it took when they could have had a conviction two years after. Wow. Yeah. it's How do you even start to heal from a process that takes two decades? I mean, well, they could have started healing earlier than they did. Right. So if you were a child of the late 80s, 90s, you remember America's Most Wanted and then Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by John Walsh, Adam's father. So John Walsh decided that even though he could no longer protect his son, he couldn't do anything for his child. He would do everything he could for other children. And so he, he is the one that started the, if you've ever worked in retail, there's a code Adam. Yeah. That is because of Adam Walsh. If, um, the Amber Alerts and things like that. John Walsh helped that be in, like put into place. He's done so many things for missing children. He is the one that finally got all of these different policing, uh, not companies, but organizations like cops, FBI, CIA, all of that. He is the one that kind of spearheaded the vicap process which is i can't remember what it stands for but it's um missing children you can put in a child's information and if they're found 
if they're lost in Georgia but somehow found in California, they'll find out immediately. When it used to be, if a kid went missing and if they're found in California, if like there's nothing they can do because they don't communicate. Mm-hmm. And it used to be easier to find a stolen car than it was to find a kidnapped child. Because of VIN numbers, you can track those. How do you track a child? And so he, John Walsh did so much for children, for child victims. He did so much. He had dedicated his life to it. And then my other good guy is Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews was a detective in another area of Florida. I believe near Jacksonville, but I don't remember already. I, my memory is terrible, but he, at the time in the 81, they heavily relied on polygraph tests. Now no one uses them, but back then they heavily relied on them and he was highly trained and then started teaching other police officers how to read and utilize polygraph tests in cases. And so Detective Matthews was asked to come to Hollywood and help them work on the case. Mm -hmm. Well, he stepped on some toes because they weren't doing their jobs correctly and he called them out on it. So not only did they send him back home, they got him demoted to regular street cop instead of detective. Wow. And all he wanted to do was solve this case. That's all. Like, he just wanted to help parents at least get closure on what happened to their child. And instead, there were some prideful, asshole police officers that just couldn't get their shit together. So, about 19, 18, 19 years into Adam's death, John Walsh reaches out to Joe Matthews, who is now retired, uh, a decorated police officer and um, reaches out to Detective Matthews and is like, it's time. It's time. And so Detective Matthews reaches out to the Hollywood police at this time. It's been so long now that the police uh, department has released all of the information they have on this case just to see if anyone can help with leads. Um, And so Detective Matthews dives into all of it. He finds photos of Otis Tool's car that they took inside and outside that were never developed. Like, he finds information like that that they had sitting in there for forever. And just puts two and two together. Complete mismanagement of the case. Yes. And it's just, it's disgusting. Like, why would you not want to do your absolute best not only because this was a child that had gone missing and then was eventually murdered Mm -hmm. but also you took an oath the you well yeah that but then this was a national case like everybody knew who adam walsh was in the early 80s and so like why would you not be crossing every t dotting every i like what are you do it's just it was in Furiating, and finally finally they have everything they need to charge this guy who in fact has been in jail 
for 18 years for murdering someone else. So he's been sitting in jail, not going anywhere. He's in jail for life, but uh-huh. it's like he still wasn't charged for it. By the time they got everything together, he died. Wow. Yeah, and it's just like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, it's 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 awful. Like, I tried looking up, you know me, I tried looking up the bad cop and seeing where the heck he finds himself these days. Couldn't find him anywhere. I was really mad. I wanted to write him an email. But, um, yeah, it was just, it was crazy He probably is off the grid because of things like that. Well, I hope he, his life has been rough. Like, you completely mismanaged a case that could have been solved within two years. Mm-hmm. If you've got someone screaming at you saying that they killed someone and you've got all the proof in the world, but you're still trying to prove that he didn't do it, yeah. it's, it may, it, oh, it set me on fire. I was so mad. Mm-hmm. But regardless, we have two good people. John Walsh, who has done so much so much for child victims and their families and has gotten so many bad people into jail where they belong for doing terrible things. And then we've got Detective Matthews who now works with John Walsh in investigating cold cases and things like that. Yeah. So hopefully he is, they're both using their powers for good. <laughs> and That's good. And it's just, it was really interesting to see it was awful reading the book, but the final few chapters was just Detective Matthews just putting things together and just like, this was always here. And it was just so frustrating, but it was really cool to follow him mm-hmm. painstakingly going every single detail of this case to make yeah. sure that he got the yeah. answers that they they deserved. It was really cool. That is good. I'm glad that you enjoyed it and that it made yeah. you feel things. Yeah. I tried to get my hands on John Walsh actually wrote a book. Um, and I couldn't get my hands on it in time. And this is one that I actually owned. Um, mm-hmm. But I will be reading John Walsh's book as well. Nice. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. My last one is also, it was a little heavy, but it's Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Nice and pronunciation. I, 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 I listened to the audio of that. Atta to girl. hear how he said it. <laughs> Very nice. So, yeah, because I was calling him something different. So, Tanahasi is how it's, and it's more of a one word instead of a hyphen. So. Okay. But this is a letter, and it's only 152 pages, but essentially it's like a memoir type letter he writes to his son about being black in America. Mm. It comes after the Michael Brown incident, and he sees his son struggling. And he sits down and writes him this thing, this letter, this memoir-ish thing. And it recounts how he came to be understanding of his black identity in America. And he was raised in Baltimore, which is interesting that you're the, the Westmore. Yeah, we've got, we've got some, some heavy Baltimore, Baltimore heavy black authors today. Yeah, apparently Baltimore in the 80s was a really rough place to be um so he you know he talks about that he talks about the american dream and how it doesn't really exist for black people and he he talks about his navigation of the world as a black man and how he has come to be able to exist in his body 
and you know things like that and it's really it's quite powerful but his dad was actually a member of the black panther party and he started a publishing company in 1978 that publishes only black authors so he ta-nehisi grew up reading all of these black authors that his dad would publish and so that was pretty cool Mm -hmm. and so he got his hands on all of this material and and being able to you know to to see that stuff i thought was really cool but his his discussions on on race and how institutionalized it is and how the notion of white america came out of you know build it on the backs of of African Americans and he also has this concept that I really was intrigued by and that was that white people were something else before they were white they Mm -hmm. grouped together to become white but he's like you were Corsican or you were Jewish or you were Catholic Mm -hmm. or something else and now you've whitewashed it and you're just you're you're just all white Mm -hmm. it's kind of like how Jesus is white with blue eyes now when he was most definitely brown. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's... I, I am obviously not the intended audience for this book. Because I am neither a man nor black. But it was really, really special. Mm-hmm. I, I can see the struggles. And I can see even my own personal shortcomings as an ally in trying mm-hmm. to you know, help, I, I can see how it, did, like, we didn't just get here, you know, mm-hmm. it was generation upon generation upon generation of someone decided at some point that the color of your skin was, you know, bone deep, was inherently inferior to theirs and... Or Yeah, it, it just... So, Americans believe in the reality of race as a defined, indubitable feature of the natural world. Racism, the need to ascribe bone-deep features to people and humiliate, reduce, and destroy them, inevitably follows from the inalterable condition. In this way, racism is rendered in the innocent daughter of Mother Nature, and one can deplore... The middle passage or the trail of tears as one deploys an earthquake or tornado that can be cast beyond the handiwork of men. Hmm. We make it this thing that, like, has existed that, you know, is beyond our control. Mm-hmm. That is the same as a tornado or an earthquake where we don't have to take personal responsibility for it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought that was kind of brilliant analysis of it. And I can totally, totally see that that is what has happened. It, it makes perfect sense. And yeah. I just thought that was really powerful quote. But it, I mean, it was just, it was really good in general. But I can't imagine how to navigate that life. Right. He does say, you know, I'm not the same type of black man that your father was, and you will not be the same type of black man I was. Mm-hmm. And we're always changing. So this is just my experience and how I got here to give you insight and in how to help you become the best version of you that you can become mm-hmm. and how that you can 
use my experiences to be able to remain in control of your own body. And I, mm. I just thought it was really powerful and pretty cool. That sounds powerful. That author, I've seen his name uh, several times mentioned, yes. and I'm he's on my list to read. Yes. Um, his new fiction book, he, he's mostly wrote nonfiction, but this mm-hmm. year, or 2019, he wrote a, a nonfiction. It was The Water Dancer. And it's yes. everywhere. Everywhere. Yes. Um, okay. Actually, he was a journalist. He's written a lot of articles. Um, he's written for a lot of different newspapers. Mm. He was like a cultural um, editor, making sure, like talking about race in America and newspapers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so then we come to this, and it's not his first book. He's very prolific. Actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're you are seeing his name more because he does have that new nonfiction out. The Water Dancer. Okay. Yeah. I knew that I had seen his name in fiction, but I, I couldn't remember the title. So, very cool. Yeah. It was really good. And it was oh. short. Like I said, only 152 pages. So, it's definitely worth the the few minutes, you know, a few hours that it will take you to get through it. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. My last one is another Black author. This is How We Fight for Our Lives by Saeed Jones. I and, picked this one up as well. Oh, really? Yeah. It was very good, very lyrical. He's a poet. Yeah. So it was very, like, it was almost almost musical, his writing. Like, it was just, oh, it was, it was lovely. And he also had a beautiful quote, heartbreaking, but beautiful quote about being a black man. And it's, just as some cultures have a hundred words for snow... There should be a hundred words in our language for all the ways a black boy can lie awake at night. I know. Um, So not only is he a black man, but he is also a black gay man. So he's just got two things just automatically. Yes. Yes. He was by, by a single mother. So he just, you know, right off the bat has two things, two strikes against him. And he's raised by a single mother and she is wonderful. He, this is kind of like his love letter to her. And he, he talks about their relationship as it ebbed and flowed throughout his, his growing up and all of that. And her, like, you could feel how he wrote it. You could feel her despair when she couldn't afford to send him to NYU. Like he had been himself right working so hard on getting scholarships and speaking to his counselor there. And he had no idea that she had been working so hard talking to banks and trying to find loans. And one day it was just, she just broke down and she was like, I can't pay for you to go. And so he had to settle. Um, And so he ended up going to a smaller school in Kentucky on a speech and debate scholarship, which sounds awesome. Yeah. But he ended up going and he decided once he got to school that he would, uh, he, he said, I made myself a promise, even if it meant becoming a stranger to my loved one, even if it meant keeping secrets, I would have a life of my own. And so he went to school as an out man. He went to school and it was just automatically, hey, I'm Saeed, I'm gay. 
Like, everyone at school knew it. He dated. He hooked up. He did what he wanted. But he became this version of, of himself that he hated. And I think that a lot of us go through that in mm-hmm. our in our 18 to 22 years. We kind of, yeah. we think that we're out and we're going to finally become who we are and we make terrible decisions and he kind of hit that hard um and but then he he finally kind of makes his way he finally gets to New York but only because of his mother's life insurance Mm. and it's just it's so it's soul crushing like you just you feel his grief you feel it like the that The way that he wrote, I am not a big poetry person, but because he is a poet, the way that he wrote this was just like the way, like the way he described things. It was gorgeous. So beautiful. Awesome. That's what I've seen about uh, people talking about that book as how lyrical it is. Yes. It was just beautiful. Um, Roxy and Gay gave it five stars. So I was like, okay. Like, all right. But he also has several books of poetry out, but this was his first, it was his memoir, but I think it was very cathartic for him to write it. I I could just, I could feel him working through that grief that he was dealing with. He works through the fact that his grandmother was a very, very fierce Christian and his mother was a just a free Buddhist spirit and kind of when he went to live with his grandma grandmothers during the summer. So his mother could not spend so much money feeding him throughout the summer, you know, kids. So he would go and stay with his mother, his grandmother for a month in the summer and she would force him to go to church and would tell people pray for this child. He is worldly. His mother's Buddhist and all of that. And it was just kind of working through how, like, what do you feel when your grandmother tells you everything about you is wrong? And like, it, it was just working through that. It was, it was lovely. I'm so glad I read it. I went and sat outside in my hammock and read it in one swoop. It was like 250 pages. It was wonderful. That's good. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. It was lovely. I'm so glad I read it. Yeah, absolutely. And we read some really good things that were fitting for, for kind of the yes. way the world is going right now. So I'm glad yes. that as well. I was trying very, very hard to make very conscious decisions. And from now on, forever, I want to make very conscious decisions in what I, what I read, what I choose to read. I have, like we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, like I've not on purpose have I purchased mostly female-written books it just happens that way and so not on purpose have I read mostly books written by white people but I need to make more of a conscious effort to more purposefully read um in a wider variety and it has has not disappointed me so far so but it was a good it was a good week of reading I enjoyed it nice I'm glad I had a good week as well yes I've I've been reading things that I'm very excited to discuss in our what we've been reading episode in a couple of weeks oh yes very excited very excited about our our buddy read we've got coming up yes 
uh, Buddy Read next week. It is my pick. And we're doing the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. This is by Grady Hendrix. He's very prolific as well. I didn't realize until I was looking into it. Yes. He also wrote the book that I read in October, Horror Store, which is weirdly awesome. So I am am very intrigued to see how this one goes. I've read nothing but good things. I'm very excited about it. I just got it from the library. It just became available on Saturday. So I'm like, yes, everything is working out. I also saw that he read, he wrote this book that I really am intrigued by. And I didn't, I don't remember the title, but it said it was like the exorcism. My best, my best friend's exorcism. And it looks, it looks like one of those choose your own adventures, super eighties book. It looks like it's been beaten up and that you bought it at a yard sale. It says that's what it looks like. A mix of beaches and the exorcist. (laughs) And so I recently watched beaches for the first time. I had never seen it before. Girl. Yeah. You were, you were not allowed to have your Southern card until you watched beaches. (laughs) They're, neither one of them are Southern. I know, but I feel like it's a, every Southern woman has seen <laughs> beaches and steel magnolias. Well, I've seen steel magnolias many times, but I tend to avoid things that I know purposefully are going to make me sad. So that's why I had been avoiding beaches. But I felt the other day like I needed a good cry. Like, I don't, do you ever feel like that? that you uh, just all the time. need a good cry. And so every I'm, day I, I needed a catalyst to get me there. And so I settled on beaches, and it was really it was so good. Was so, so glad. So glad. Um, so glad. But, yeah, so now I'm intrigued to read The Exorcist Meets Beaches, set in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> no, it looks too. awesome. Yeah. But I'm excited about the vampires. I am, too. I'm feeling good. I'm vampires. feeling good about it. Yeah. Very excited. Hopefully it's not one that we have to. You shut your face. I don't think that it will be. I think I don't think it will be enough. Yes. I think just the way he writes is so funny. Like I loved the way he wrote horror store. So I, I have very high hopes for it. I'm, I'm feeling good about it. All right, guys. I hope you guys have a wonderful reading week and a regular week, but mostly reading week and happy father's day to everyone. Happy father's day. Love you, Daddy. <laughs> he listens to you now. That's precious. Oh Happy God. Father's Day, Tavius Dad. <laughs> All right, guys. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Bye.